0: Just one note for our listeners. This episode was recorded with some internet issues, which you may hear, but it's still a really good episode. Seriously, it's really good. Hey, Stage Combat listeners, Sean Hayden here. Well, after two seasons together, you certainly know a lot about me, but here's one thing you don't know. I am a certified news junkie, and that means for years I've been following ABC News Chief National Correspondent Matt Gutman. He's a multi-award-winning reporter. He regularly contributes to World News Tonight with David Muir, 2020, Good Morning America, and Nightline. For years I've watched Matt report from War Zones.
1: We're on- The eastern side of the town of Chasaviar, you can hear that. Artillery outgoing, rifling through the air. Um, Not much
0: left. I've watched them survive captivity under Venezuela's secret police. I've seen Matt weather the eyes of hurricanes. And even swimming with anacondas in the Amazon. was awesome. He's basically that adventurer journalist that you could plop down right into the middle of an action movie. Well, as we were releasing season two of Stage Combat, Matt's social media caught my eye. So for 20
1: plus years, I suffered from panic attacks, hundreds and hundreds of panic attacks. And for most of those years, I didn't know what a panic attack was, much less that I had panic disorder. Most of those panic attacks happened while I was live on air. Um,
0: so- because Matt was talking about his own mental health journey and hearing about someone else who also suffered with panic attacks, you know, after telling you about mine in Sage combat, well, that really resonated with me. Then I found out Matt had just written a book about his experiences and panic disorders. What they found
1: was that 30% of all the patients who present at ERs across the country thinking that they're dying of a heart attack are actually suffering a panic attack. 30%, that's the
0: equivalent. Matt's book is called No Time to Panic, How I Curbed My Anxiety and Conquered a Lifetime of Panic Attacks. So after hearing all of this, I pleaded with our publicist. I said, is there any way we could reach out To see if Matt would share his story with our stage combat listeners. And a few emails later, here he is. So let's dive right in with Matt Gutman. Matt, I was telling you earlier, our stage combat listeners actually know you apart from ABC News because once I saw your social post about sharing your mental health journey and your upcoming book, we've been featuring your social media post. So it's so great to have you here in person talking to our listeners.
1: I am so happy to be here talking to your listeners who are my people. You know, I feel like like we're all sort of kindred spirits in this.
0: I mean, that's really what it's about, right? It is so many of us just felt like we have suffered in silence and to build community and to break that silence. And that's so much, I think, what is part of your story. (laughs)
1: When was the first time that you even... Did you know what a panic attack was when you had, I had the
0: first one? I had no idea, Matt. I, I collapsed on I no stage idea. during a performance and had no idea what was happening to me. Hmm. What about you when you had your first one?
1: How old were you? What year was this?
0: Well, was that this 2019? Was 2019. Yeah. Yeah. So middle-aged, first panic attack.
1: I mean, well-educated theater person. I was the same way. You know, I'm Williams College, which is a, a prestigious school. I've had, I'm the beneficiary of a great education, good parents who really cared. I had done therapy for years. And I had my first panic attack at 21, probably mm. before, but that's the first like, you know, soak the shirt. I have cats at my neck. I can't breathe. I have tunnel vision. Something terrible is happening to me. I may be molting into a werewolf panic attack. And I still didn't know that it was a panic attack or all the hundreds that I'd had since. Between the age of 21 till about my mid-30s, I just called it nerves. I didn't know what mm. it was. Yeah. There is so little education and intervention for something that is so massively common, it is shocking. It is so lacking in our society, and it's incredibly depressing that it is so.
0: It is. And you know, what we have found, we released two seasons of Stage Combat, kind of telling my story, and, and we're hearing the same thing for listeners they're hearing me and saying, oh, I'm realizing I had an episode or I had other episodes and now I know there were panic attacks. And I had no idea at the time other than something was really, really wrong with me. But it just, that stat that you were sharing about how many people go to the ER, right? How many millions that translated to that they were not heart attacks, they were panic attacks. It's an alarming amount of people.
1: You know, Sean, that that stat, you just mentioned was heartbreaking to me when I first realized it, learned it in my research for this book. There are 8 million Americans who present at the nation's emergency rooms every year presenting for heart attacks um, or thinking that they have heart attacks. turns out that over 3 million of them, 3 million every year are actually having a panic attack and only one to 2% of them, one to 2% are actually treated for that mental health illness, or event they're having, right? Because you may have panic disorder, which which I do and I've been dealing with, and some people may have one panic attack in their lifetime. But what we know is that the symptoms of a panic attack almost perfectly mimic the symptoms of a heart attack. Shortness of breath, rapid breathing, feelings of derealization. Sometimes people get tightness in their upper arms and their chest, sweating, shaking, uh, tunnel vision, uh, all these things present clinically to 911 dispatchers, to doctors initially, as heart attack, as cardiac events, which is why it's so scary. And the reason for that is that your brain is telling your body that it there is a serious issue that needs to be dealt with. And this is a life and death issue. That's what your brain is telling the body. It may not be, but it's something that has to be dealt with. And it's so unfortunate that so many of these people who present at the emergency rooms can't get the help that they need.
0: Yeah. And as part of that, even the emergency room people are not trained enough to be able to tell them you're having a panic attack. They're just telling you you're not having a heart attack. There's nothing wrong with you, right?
1: So they're sent home to ponder what it might be that is driving them to have these Colossally uncomfortable and scary symptoms, right? Maybe it's an aneurysm, maybe I'm having a stroke, maybe it's something else, cancer, um, which can actually turn a one off panic attack into full blown panic disorder. That's what's so unfortunate about it. And, you know, I don't blame the doctors, they deal with physiology. And they feel like their realm is the physical and they feel uncomfortable delving into the realm of the psychological when it's not their jurisdiction. I understand that, but we need better intervention in our society. The more I learn about this and the more I learn how pervasive it is and hear people with stories like yours and mine and so many people out there, the more I realize that so many people's lives have been damaged unnecessarily because of panic.
0: So Matt, as a way of confronting your own panic disorder, you really did a deep dive into researching about panic attacks. What did you learn?
1: My first question, or one of my first questions was, what is panic, right? And so I spent some time learning the symptoms, how it happens, the chemical cascade that creates a panic attack, because it really is one of the most complete integrations of the mind-body that exists, right? I mean, I call a panic attack the sum of all anxiety. It is the orgasm of anxiety, right? The, the thing that is the pinnacle, that harnesses all of the elements of anxiety in one massive, like, punch to the chin.
0: Well, I think um, we need a t-shirt for that. It is the orgasm of anxiety. I mean, but it really is.
1: Making you sometimes blubber things that you regret, leaving you sweaty and shattered afterwards and sometimes feeling like you need a cigarette or whatever it is that you do to to yeah. blow off steam.
0: And not only emotionally beat up, but physically beat up afterwards. I don't think that's what a lot of people realize. Because when I went through mine at my theater job, it was that also that feeling of being physically beat up for days afterwards.
1: My back used to kill because I would hold myself so erect during live, get people are watching, but I would hold myself so yeah. erect and like tense everything up that afterwards yeah. I'd be like, Ugh. yeah, you know, it, it was just the release. And I didn't even know that I was straining so much at the muscles. Okay. So the first question I, I asked was, what is this? Then I asked, why is this? Why is it that humans even have panic? I could not understand for the life of me why we had not selected out of it, right? Mm. What happened to survival of the fittest? How can it be? that this is a trait that has remained in the human genome, right? It is the most, it is harmful. It is bad for your health. How could this still exist? So am I the product of some weird kink in the human genome, or is there something else going on? And so I went down this rabbit hole of evolutionary psychology and biology, and I learned that panic is actually normal. I'll say it again. Panic is actually normal. Here's why. There are two major baskets of fear that early humans had. One, like we lived in a cave with a bunch of our kin, typically, sometimes people who weren't exactly family, but close. We were afraid of being eaten on the savannah by a lion of rock falls. We were afraid of lightning, of fire, of illness, of a splinter that could turn into an infection that would kill us. Those are the physical fears. The second basket of fears were the social ones. Because we lived in cooperation with these other cave people or tribes people or whatever it was. And without the cooperation and the network of that small, tight-knit group, we were goners. If we got excommunicated out onto the savannah, we were dead. So we needed that group. So the fear of social rejection became massively powerful, which is why we are so attuned to that slightly raised eyebrow to the judgment that we sense in the curl of someone's lips in a frown. We are exquisitely attuned to these social cues, some of us more than others, right? So the social fears ended up having as much physical stress response as the physical fears, mm-hmm. which is why we have literally the fear of impending death when we fear social rejection or social judgment. That is why we have a panic attack It is the body and the brain's way to remind us not to make a social transgression. Don't get kicked out of your group because it could end up with you being dead. Stay in the group. Don't make, you know, whatever. Don't step on the mother or earth mother goddess figurine or whatever it was. And so we are actually justified in having pretty much the same amount of fear in social rejection as we do in being eaten by a lion. That's why I have that visceral sense of fear.
0: So this was part of, this is what you found out on your personal journey. You know, we use that word a lot, but you went on a real journey to kind of figure out why your mind and body behaved the way it did for the past 20 years, right? And were you able to come to some insights as to what had caused your history of panic attacks? Were there particular incidents in your lives or daily stimulus? What were you able to come to as far as a conclusion?
1: I knew exactly what the stimulus was. It was going live in front of a television camera. Mm. It was the fear of judgment of my peers. It was the fear that I would make some sort of mistake, lose control, and get kicked out of my group. You know, Mm. my group was the executives and the anchors at ABC News. And my fear was somehow making the group weaker and being kicked out of the group. So social judgment was my personal fear. Now, why do I have such a keen fear of social judgment? I'm not sure. I I just call it the courageous coward, right? For many years, I was the reporter, I still am, who goes to war zones. I spent the first seven and a half years of my career in the Middle East, covering every single major conflict in the Middle East from 2001 to 2008. I was there when 9-11 happened. I was in Iraq. Shortly after the war began, I've been to Afghanistan, to Syria, to Lebanon, I've been shot at, I've been held captive in Venezuela by the secret police, all these things. But my God, standing in front of a camera about to go live when there's absolute silence around me in pristine circumstances, that was terrifying to me.
0: Going in front of a camera live, that was more fearful for you than actually being in a real dangerous situation, such as a war zone.
1: I wasn't afraid of the lion eating me. Yeah. I was afraid of the social rejection by my group. Yeah. I felt more comfortable with the lion than being kicked out of my group. Now, once I started this journey, it's a cliche, but it is an apt term, I found that altered states, uh, everything from breathwork to psilocybin to ayahuasca, ketamine, mescaline, all these things, helped me reach a subconscious state where I could grapple with my grief.
0: Was part of grappling with that grief, was that dealing with, well, you you lost your father, right? When you were very young.
1: I I mean, yes, I think so. It it may be some PTSD as well. I don't know if I can pinpoint. I don't know if anybody can exactly pinpoint their grief, but I know it's in there. And it felt like there was this bottomless well that I couldn't out of. And it was just so deep. And I was afraid to go in it in my conscious head state. And so the only way I could get into that seemingly bottomless well of grief was to get into this altered state and be thrust into it. And I felt that going there helped me deal with a lot of the psychological issues.
0: You actually started with very conventional treatment, yes, and then evolved onto less conventional. And you found that was sort of the opening for you. I started
1: with pharmacology. I mean, I'm sure a lot of people out there, a lot of listeners, especially on this podcast, you know, sure. my kindred spirits, my souls here, um, you know, have tried clonopin and benzos and SSRIs. I also was on, I tried Adderall because my psychiatrist says I do have ADHD, but none of the medication, propranolol, uh, nothing really worked. The, the benzos and the propranolol made me feel sluggish uh, and I didn't want to be doing that much of this very addictive drug. Yeah. Not every time, you know, if you're going on air 10 times a week, like how much Xanax was I going to be taking? That was not the route that I wanted to keep taking. I needed to try to find something else, which is why I try to find alternative therapies. Uh, some of them were unorthodox. I wouldn't recommend someone following my exact roadmap of getting to wellness, to mental health wellness, but hopefully my book prescribes a couple of things that people can use and they can take shortcuts that I didn't know existed
0: in stage combat over 20 episodes, the listener has kind of heard my own journey. And I think you'll agree, there's no one journey that fits everyone. And I think what's interesting about you, Matt, is that you kept trying different ways until (laughs) you found the opening. And did you feel like that you did find where you needed to go to be able to, you know, deal with your panic, deal with your trauma? Or is this something you're still trying to, maybe hold a truce with? Where do you think you are on that today?
1: So I ended up, first of all, thank you. I ended up going back to Mike Telch, who is the the head of the University of Austin lab for the study of anxiety. And, you know, when I first went there, I was at severe panic disorder. And now I'm at, I mean, he would say, mild panic disorder, right? Like, I'm still afraid of having a panic. I am still afraid of losing control. I know that the outcomes will not be catastrophic. I know that my mind always kicks into gear, but I can't say that I won't have another panic again. I probably will. And so this is about coming to a truce with the warring parties in our brain, with that drill sergeant that stands over you in your brain as you're talking, as you're performing, as you're presenting in front of your colleagues and says, you're bad, you're about to, oh, there you go, there's a panic attack. You're panicking right now and you're blithering. Oh, now you're sweating too, great. You look terrible. You're a loser. That guy, that drill sergeant, is being retired. He's he's gone to pension. Uh-huh. I can't say that any one therapy cured me, although some people have that experience. Some people say that well or Zoloft or some medication took away all of their panic. And it does work for some people. I'm not opposed to those medications. I'm also not a doctor, by the way. But for me, sort of everything, this holistic reframing of panic worked. Will it do the trick forever? I don't know. I hope so. But at least I won't hate myself as much as I used to a few years
0: ago. You said with your therapies, everything worked, some more than others, but they all led to emotional surrender. Can you tell us what you mean by emotional surrender? That seems like a very powerful phrase.
1: So part of it is doing just this, right? It's being vulnerable yeah it's talking about what was my darkest secret, the thing I couldn't tell because I'd be fired. I'd lose my reputation, my career, my status. It would be colossally bad if people yeah. knew that I'
0: panic, yeah, I went through the so, same thing, yeah
1: and and how cathartic was it to tell people I mean, you're doing it very publicly,
0: yeah, um, and so it, are you it, it, it's, it, yeah. <laughs>
1: Which actually does cause a little bit of anxiety. (laughs) It does, right before.
0: Yeah, it does. I had that, oh my God, they're going to know.
1: You know, what does emotional surrender mean? It's, It's an excellent question. So the first part is relinquishing that control of the secret, right? I let it out. I talked to a stranger on a plane. That was the first thing. I was like, I had a panic on air in December of 2020. And I thought I'd beat panic and I hadn't. And I was so despondent, and I got on this plane, and there was this lovely lady, Kat Armado, who we're still in touch with, I'm still in touch with. And I just told her everything. And it was like a weight was lifted. And I'm like, this is really good medicine. Yeah. And then I started telling colleagues, and friends, and people in my orbit. So that was one form of emotional surrender. The other was finding ways to get to that well of grief, to let it out, to be able to cry, to cry with strangers i ended up crying a lot during this book to again relinquish a different kind of control control over the pain that i hold inside and that was pretty big for me and i need to keep doing it because it's a most wells. the water keeps seeping in from the rock around it right and it keeps filling up so it needs maintenance and, and that's something that i have to keep working on and will have to keep working on i guess throughout my life
0: ask you something that i've talked a lot about is the role of formal identifying people traditional masculine norms and i'm interested i know in my journey that certainly played a, a role in my shame of anyone knowing that i had mm-hmm. a panic disorder is that part of your experience as well of course yeah. yeah
1: especially since i was this you know tough war correspondent i wasn't supposed to I mean, people who meet me, I'm extremely gregarious, I'm energetic, I'm small of stature, but big of personality, you know, and I I really like people. And to have this weakness, this Achilles heel was so shameful. The stigma around it is massive. And that's what's so sad about panic in general, right? Like it's okay to talk about certain mental health conditions and disorders, But panic isn't really talked about in our society because it's associated with hysteria and loss of control. And we as men have to
0: keep control. We have to maintain that control. And it's certainly not talked about with regard to men. I I will say this. When I had my panic, I figured out I had had a panic attack. The only person I knew Googling was Dan Harris. (laughs) You know? Ah. Yeah. and By the way,
1: Dan Harris is the first person who told me that what I was having were panic attacks.
0: Well there you go. Before I mean, this, he wrote the book. This is why this is so important the and I'm more like, that oh. yeah. Yeah. And I watched dance on air panic attack and I was like, "Oh my god, that's exactly what I've done." So, yeah, just the lack of young men, any men being able to look up to someone. Is, this is why it's so important what you're doing, Matt, because you have such a big platform and people do look up to you for your fearlessness, but The fearlessness as a war correspondent and a guy who has a panic disorder, they coexist together. It is a complete person, and that's what we have to change in perceptions of people.
1: You know, I think, I I love that you just use the term complete person, because crying, being vulnerable, exposing yourself in some ways that might feel uncomfortable, revealing your dark secret is part of the complete human experience. Yeah. Right. Like, and if we don't have that, we are bound to break down. And so again, this is what this journey taught me that, you know, as vulnerable as I am typically, and I'm, you know, a big sharer, hiding stuff can be pretty bad and pretty damaging, especially something like panic. So I'm working on it and I'm still, I'm working on it all the time. It's, it's, it's not something that you master and it goes away, I don't think, but it's also, I want people just to know, it's been obviously very painful for me and for you. It's probably directed our career in certain ways that we hadn't anticipated. Yes. Um, but it's also, it's it's super strength. Yeah. And I do believe it's a superpower because people who have panic are much more likely to be ultra sensitive to others. Empathetic. Um, and remember, there is a reason that it's still, yes. Yeah. And there's a reason it still exists in the human genome and hasn't been selected out over tens of thousands of generations. There's something in there that is beneficial to the human condition. And so as long as we don't think of it as something that's got to be killed, stamped out, crushed, that is evil, that is nefarious, it's just part of the complete human experience. As long as we remember that, I think it's very important and helps sort of push that drill sergeant, that angry drill sergeant out of the corner of our brains.
0: Well, I'm so glad to hear that you were able to come to that point. It's something I was able to come to after three and a half years, and that's something our listeners have heard in my story. Can I ask you, what has the reception been like with your professional colleagues now that you have become public about uh, your panic disorder in the book? What What is that like for you right now?
1: So, the, you know, a lot of them have come forward and said, I also suffer from panic. I've had those panic attacks too. I think this is actually one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you because I think in the world of actors and of people who are presenters and television and radio and other media, I think this is far more common than anybody talks about.
0: Oh, I do too. And I
1: think the use of drugs to combat it is far more common than anyone wants to talk about. I don't exactly know how pervasive it is in my industry, but I imagine I mean it's a terrifying thing, right? There's a, a, a director in your ear counting you down. You have 15 seconds to talk. We're expected to be perfect. And you have 15 seconds, right? It's easy to talk for minutes and you have an um or stutter. No one can be perfect in that amount of time. But the shortness, the actual brevity of what we're supposed to do as TV correspondents makes it more difficult, especially when we're in the field. So, you know, it, it's kind of a crazy business and there's all these stuff that's happening around the scene. And I'm sure acting is the same way in theater
0: yeah for sure whether you're performing in front of a live camera or a live audience it's basically flying without a net matt what do you hope your readers take away from your book apart from what is a really compelling personal story and the research i'm just wondering whether there's a feeling or something that you hope the readers take away from the book.
1: I think it's actually very simple. Um, And I think you kind of alluded to it just now. I hope that the reader or listener, audiobook as well, will think to themselves, I'm okay. I am not some weird ink in the human genome. I'm okay. And maybe even I am the normal one. (laughs) Maybe it is normal to have panic when we think about how networked we are as human beings and how dependent we are on the cooperation of other human beings. Maybe we, the ultra sensitive are the normal ones. Maybe I'm okay. And if my book helps, I I, I don't expect it to solve anybody's panic, right? I couldn't even solve my own. Like, I don't know if I'm not going to have another panic again, but if it makes people feel okay with themselves. If it hushes that drill sergeant that says those terrible things in their head, that would mean the world to me. And I and I hope that that's what people come away with.
0: Well, at Stage Combat, our little catchphrase is claim your story. My story and and the people that message us and our listeners, it's all about sharing and claiming our stories, particularly when we've had a story that we've been ashamed of or we've lived in secrecy. So I think you are the ultimate person that's claiming their story. And, wow. Um,
1: That's quite a destination. Thank you. I'm, I'm honored, especially with you, you know? Oh,
0: please, please. Uh, uh, and I think that, I think you agree that two people like us having a conversation like this, you know, it has dividends and, you know, we all have different platforms, mm-hmm. right? You have a big platform, Matt. And I have a modest one and there's people with less than me, but we all have a platform. It can be just who we sit around and have coffee or drinks with that we can talk about what we're going through.
1: You know? That is so important because one of the dividends of doing this book and talking about it is that all these people have come out of the woodwork. You know, I talk about it at parties now, wherever I go, I'm just very open about it. And all these people are confessing to me, they wake up with night terrors or they have panic attacks when they have to do a Zoom with their colleagues and they tell me about it and they realize they're not alone. They realize it's okay to talk about it. And for me, that has been one of the greatest dividends personal dividends and rewards from doing this project. Because so I think it's, we're- It's been wonderful to see.
0: I think so many people are desperate for community in yes. that regard, don't you think, Matt? And that's what's happening with the people commenting on your social media, that how much it means to hear you express what you're going through. It's community.
1: So, you know, Sean, one of the things that I started looking for back in 2020, late 2020 and early 2021, before you existed as a podcast, was a support group. Yeah. I don't know if you ever joined one. Did you?
0: I did not. No.
1: So once I started talking to people and telling people about the panic, the it was medicine. I was like, okay, I've never done one before, but I need to find a support group. And do you know how many I found nationwide? And I got, I enlisted the help of the ADA, the APA, everybody. Three nationwide that you can join.
0: That's just bonkers. How is that possible? I don't know.
1: So that's why I think platforms like this, like yours, are essential to helping people and letting them know that they are not alone.
0: I just want to tell our listeners, Matt's book is No Time to Panic, How I Curbed My Anxiety and Conquered a Lifetime of Panic attacks. It's published by Doubleday, and we want to tell our listeners to make sure they get a copy of Matt's book and, and to let us know what really resonates with with you and reading Matt's story, and we're gonna continue this conversation on stage combat. So you're you're gonna be part of the conversation for a while, Matt Gutman at Stage Combat. I am
1: honored. Thank you. Thank you so much, Sean.
0: Thank you, Matt Thank Thanks Gutman. everybody out there. Thank you. Okay, Stage Combat listeners, you've got your homework assignment. Pick up a copy of Matt's book and let's talk about it together on Stage Combat. And just a reminder, neither Matt nor I are medical professionals, so please consult with a medical professional regarding any medical or mental health issues, and particularly with regard to alternative therapies. Stage Combat is a production of Haywood Productions, LLC. You know, I'm still thinking about what Matt said. What if we are the normal ones and it's everyone else that's... Well, it's kind of like a Twilight Zone episode. I'm going to be thinking about this one for quite a while. Hmm.